1: Thanks for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. Um, we got a lot to talk about, as we always do. I start an awful lot of shows saying that because it's always the case. Uh, political news just doesn't slow down here in Georgia or across the country, of course, uh, these days. So let's get right to it. We have two journalists with us today Greg Bluestein, who, of course, writes uh, politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You see him. There are so many days when Greg Bluestein has two bylines on the front page of the paper. It's a little astonishing to me. He never stops working. And of course, Greg, we see you in the uh, uh, Political uh, Insider, the blog that's at AJC.com. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you're watching us on Facebook Live and sitting right across from Greg Bluestein, Laurie Geary, uh, who for what, 15 years? I always get this wrong. 16 years was the political reporter at WSB-TV Channel 2.
0: 13 years, but 19 years at WSB Total.
1: Yeah, and uh, now is the host of Georgia Gang, which airs every Sunday morning on uh, Fox 5, WAGA, mm-hmm. and uh, which features people who are often on this show as well. Uh, Theron Johnson right. is uh, on the show uh, regularly with you now. How are things going with that? Fun. You're having
0: fun? Yes, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a really it's, fun show. Yeah, it
1: is fun to do a political show.
0: <laughs> you would know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Heath Garrett is here. Heath is a uh, Republican operative, works with lots of different Republicans, government relations. Uh, uh, expert and uh, of course is very closely associated with Johnny Isaacson. and he since this is the first time you've been on the show since the surprising announcement about Johnny stepping down which I know you were deeply involved in working with him on at some point in the show I'd like to ask you if you will share just some of your thoughts about that with us and I'm really glad to have back here Howard Franklin Democratic political consultant and he too does government relations work um, and I always ask this, because uh, Heath, Heath has answered this on another show. Do you have any... Are, are, you, are you invested in the uh, 2020 races? You got, you've got uh, yeah. some candidates?
2: We, we talked about Theresa Thomas, you know, I'm a longtime collaborator with right. and certainly helping out in the U.S. Senate race. Uh, that's it for now.
1: Okay. Um, we're going to talk about the Senate race, uh, which is Greg Bluestein's favorite subject. He's yes. in hog heaven that we're going to spend a good, <laughs> good amount of time on it. I do want to point something out to you. If you were listening to yesterday's show... Uh, You heard me announce that John Ossoff had agreed that he would be here today. He just announced uh, the night before last that he was officially in the U.S. Senate race, running for Senate seat number one, the David Perdue seat. Uh, He had confirmed to us yesterday that he would be here late yesterday afternoon. uh, We got a phone call from his campaign saying, sorry, we're canceling our appearance on your show. Uh, We asked why they say they had a conflict uh, that they couldn't resolve, that they weren't aware of at the time they accepted our invitation. I'm, I'm sorry for all of you out there because uh, Sarah Amico, Ted Terry, and uh, Teresa Tomlinson all came on this show either on the day they announced they were running or the day after they announced they were running. We love having them on immediately. Obviously, uh, through, uh, Ossoff uh, is not going to be here today. Uh, we'll see if we can get him to come into the studio at some point. Uh, we want to be fair and give everybody a shot at talking about their campaigns. All right. Uh, that said, Greg Blustein, start with that. Um, what does uh presence in this race mean to the race? How does it shake things up?
3: That's a good question. I mean, he, he is trying to position himself as the immediate front runner. Um, the, the, the candidate who has already raised $30 million in his 2017 campaign with a really lengthy fundraising list, who can right out the gate raise a tremendous amount of money and use that to position himself over the next few, few months. He said he will use this 2017 campaign as a blueprint for what he's gonna do in 2020. Um, He says he's going to build the most effective, biggest grassroots army Georgia has ever seen. Um, And after last year's 2018 campaign with Stacey Abrams, that's saying a lot. He he wants to build something even bigger than Stacey Abrams built. He says Abrams is an inspiration to him in that regard and that his main he in an interview with me over about an hour he he might have used the word corruption thirty times
1: with David Purdue in terms in of in terms David of David Purdue he
3: he says there's a culture of corruption in Washington and David Purdue is helping to fuel that and he's going to make his campaign about uh, it's a lot more populist sounding than it was in 2017 to be certain right I mean, he he's talking about. Um, debt-free tuition and climate change and, and other issues that, you know, he might have touched on in 2017, but now he's putting at the center of his campaign. Is
1: he working with the same team that he had for the house race, or is he brought in new consultants? Do you know well, gonna what the team's going to look like? Well, yeah. sure, but um, essentially the same people running no, the campaign. No,
3: um, I, I, I touched base with some of the people from 2017. And they, remember, they've, they, a lot of them from out of state anyway. They've, they, they have other, uh, other gigs now. Um, one of the people he's working with was uh, working on Carolyn Bordeaux's team, as early, as recently as just a few months ago, he's he's now on her uh, on John Ossoff's team. He's hired some new consultants and new. I'm sure there's some crossover, but it's 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 going to be a blend of people. from Okay, the reason
1: them. I ask that, of course, is you say he's got some new messaging. Uh, sounds yeah. much more like a populist, Lori. Um, it's also it, a different race, though, too, right? Well, of course, yeah. Lori um, is um, is Ossoff correct to imagine that that energy that was there for him the enthusiasm that he built during that 2017 special election will be something that he should be able to tap in i mean he certainly will say that that's what he's going to do but how realistic is his hope that he'll be able to rekindle that passion
0: another good question bill because he was kind of the name we were waiting on right to get into this race at least here in metro atlanta the question is can he take this energy And move it into rural Georgia. I mean, is he known in rural Georgia? Is he working um, his grassroots campaign there? I think it's interesting, you know, he really didn't make mention of his Democratic opponents. He went right in Mm -hmm. to David Perdue. So we know his mindset there. Also, he's really tying himself to Stacey Abrams, um, which is a really – great tactic in terms of Democrats. But I really think we have to see how he plays out in rural Georgia. And I can't wait to see the polling and the cross tabs here. Now,
1: I, you know, Howard, that's a really interesting question is, you know, we all are so aware of Ossoff and people who follow politics nationally, people who really care about politics certainly know about the Ossoff handle race. But Laurie raises the question, If you're living down there in Tifton, how much attention did you pay to John Ossoff, and does he have an advantage?
2: Yeah, I think if you're in Congressional District 6, you know about him, right? Or if you, like you said, if someone who spent a lot of time in that particular span of time looking at uh, national politics and what was happening in Georgia. But I would imagine that he's got a long ways to go to communicate to the remainder of the voters. And obviously he chose... The race where he also is going to have to have a primary. It's it's really kind of confounding, you know. He's he's talking as if he chose uh, Senate race two, um, but then he's strategizing as if he chose <laughs> Senate race one. I, I'm not exactly sure which of the two uh, you know he he would seem to be better suited for. But there's certainly you know a hungry rabid group of uh, challengers in the Democratic primary
3: awaiting him in May, yeah, and that's great. really interesting on the question of name rec because shortly after he got in the race. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, both conservative Purdue allies, to say the least, uh, circulated a Republican poll that showed his name rack around the state was 51 percent. Um, but if you dive a little deeper in the numbers, he had about a 16 percent uh, favorable rating and 12 percent unfavorable rating. So um, there's a lot of uh, room for him to grow and also room for his opponents to to, to discredit him.
1: Yeah, uh, Heath, it, it's it appears, and in fact, I read this in, uh, I think, the Jolt this morning in Political Insider blog, that, uh, Repu- that there's a sense that Republicans have started going after him so quickly and uh, with such fierce determination That in a way, they're suggesting he's the front runner by their energy, the energy around their immediate attacks.
4: Well, there's a little self interest properly understood there. That's right. right. For every push, there's a pull, and probably second only to Stacey Abrams as an electrifying figure that organizes Republicans and makes them motivated would be John Ossoff, right? And uh, obviously, it doesn't take much to say that the state of Georgia as a whole was dramatically different political district than the sixth district of. Of Georgia when you're running as a nonpartisan special election, right? Ossoff got where he was in a special election as the only Democrat basically supported by an entire nation in a special election where he didn't have to run as a Democrat. So two, two challenges for him. I don't think that his personality, his style and his issues play well outside of core metro. If he were running for State House in Decatur, slam dunk, right? If he's running for statewide, he's got to not only win this Republican primary against a formidable Teresa Tomlinson who has great networks outside of metro Atlanta. On top of that, He's got to run as a Democrat, and well, so I think that's an interesting, you know, play for him that he's a position he's not been in before. I apologize, Heath. Um,
1: you know, it's interesting to hear Heath Garrett talk about uh, uh, Howard Franklin's uh, candidate, Teresa Tomlinson, the way he did, because I think a matter of weeks ago he would have said, "Gee, Teresa Tomlinson uh, raised half a million bucks the last fundraising period, and that doesn't seem particularly promising early in the race." But I, I'm sure you're getting this too. We don't we're not hearing much at least I'm not from Ted Terry or his people but Teresa Tomlinson what she may not have in funds right now she makes up in how savvy her, she and her people are at staying in touch with journalists and I'm sure that's true for Bluestein as well just yesterday when Hassoff jumped in uh, I got a note from Tomlinson saying, just wanted you to know, I've been campaigning. I've been at a fundraiser in Los Angeles. I was just in San Francisco. I'm headed to Washington. So she's certainly uh, trying to keep her profile high. So
0: smart on the strategy side. And you know, don't forget, she did get the endorsement of Andy Young. Yeah.
3: And Roy um, Barnes. And, and right, Rose right. Lee. I
0: mean, so she's keeping herself out in the news, which is really smart on the strategy side. And expect and forget, more of those
2: to come. I mean, I can tell you, I'll be with her in, in D.C. Uh, during Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, leaders from across the country will get an introduction to her. Obviously, people are watching very closely what's happening in Georgia. And I'm willing to bet that she will be one of the first, if not the first candidate for this Senate race, one that many of those folks will have met.
3: And don't forget, Sarah Riggs Amico, um, we, we mentioned how Asaf focused on Abrams in her in his campaign debut. She does, too. Uh, in her campaign debut, they have very tight ties. And just just today we wrote a story, and I don't know what this means. I'm not reading too much into it. But in our story today, wrote how the Abrams campaign and Abrams herself is not ruling out, wading into either of these primaries. Yeah. And I think of, of any of the candidates in the in, in the Purdue race, she's closest with media Yeah,
1: I'm glad you mentioned her. And I owe an apology to the Amico supporters out there. I, I just neglected to mention uh, that she, too, is going to run an— there's no question her people will run an aggressive campaign as well. And
3: we this race, this Purdue race, the Isaacson race still hasn't even really started, but the Purdue race could still grow, too. There still could be other candidates all right. who are and looking at And that's the question
1: I was going to turn to with all of you people. Mm-hmm. We've already got uh, one of our frequent— uh, Facebook Live uh, viewers saying to us, enough with all these candidates in the primary already. Already a concern that the field is going to get too crowded. And Greg, uh, we, we know that there is a meeting this week. Is it already taken it place? Already took place? Okay, what do we know about this? Was Tell us what the meeting was and what it was about.
3: Well, it was national Democratic staffers who came down from the, the, the senatorial committee and, and from Washington just to, remind all the candidates, because there's, I don't know, more than a dozen you know viable ca- candidates, at least kicking the tires on the race, reminding them what this will take. Because it's not it's not even a traditional Senate run, because, we, because of this doubleheader, there'll be so much time and treasure and resources spent on Georgia um, that it's going to take $20 million plus. I mean, that might just be the floor of how much it will take a candidate to raise. And there's a lot of good... You know, ca- democratic candidates out there who might be really, you know, competitive if they're running for Congress, but might not be ready for this type of scrutiny and this type of attention. Run- running this type of giant campaign that will be, especially when we're talking about the Isaacson race, that could run into twenty twenty one and be the o- one of the only contests after next year's ele- next year's general election on the ballot.
1: Yeah, Heath, I-, I get it. It's tempting. It's an op- Especially if you're looking at the Isaacson seat, well, wouldn't that be wonderful? I could go to the United States Senate. Uh, but but the sobering realities of the cost, uh, both in terms of uh, finances and just the energy involved in having to travel the state is uh, – uh, oh, Laura, you want to jump in on that?
0: I just wanted to point out, too, you're talking about – depending on how many – candidates jump in, a potential runoff, yeah. right? And if you're a Democrat looking at this race,
1: hmm.
0: we know how Democrats fare and runoffs in yeah. Georgia, what we've seen in recent history. Now, this one may be completely different because of where we are.
1: Talking about the jungle election yes. for the Johnny Isaacson seat. Heath?
4: No, the, the, if you're looking at these, A, there's some strategic thought that you want to run against an incumbent who's already closely tied to the president and Washington, D.C., right? And so now- I think David <clears throat> produced better position than my Democratic friends do on defending the seat and doing well in the 2020 cycle. However, that would be the strategic uh, counsel there. The other is that the Isaacson seat is going to be uh, the most expensive of the races because you are talking about a jungle. And like Laurie just talked about, you end up in a runoff that's now nine weeks after the November election. That's set for January the 5th of 2021. That's the Tuesday after New Year's mm-hmm. Eve and New Year's Day, and you're trying to run advertising no during uh, all the holidays, I mean, what a brutal scenario. And then you turn right back around the day after you've won that runoff, you're back into a 20 to $30 million cycle again, yeah. right? You got to go right back into 2022. The individual that the Democratic Senatorial Committee or the Republican Senatorial Committee is looking for, uh, that's a unique individual who can sustain that kind of, uh, you know, race over a three-plus-year period of time.
0: I. Did hear some thinking that you know Governor Kemp may appoint one person who would finish out the term, but then it would be just
3: an open race,
0: a,
1: a placeholder, a placeholder. But that oh, that would kind man. of take
3: away two big things Republicans yeah. have going for them. One is the advantage of incumbency, incumbency yeah. and two is that wouldn't block that would that would lead to a free for all on the yeah, Republican exactly. side too. And what is the, right. both parties' worst nightmare is what happened in 2017. Almost happened to Republicans in that special election. Yeah. Eighteen candidates get in. Yeah. Fifteen or something. Thirteen of them are Republicans. They almost let Ossoff win that race outright because the Republicans were fighting with each other. So, so Howard,
1: let's make sure that we explain to listeners what th- this important point that's being made here. If if Governor Kemp appoints um, someone he expects will be the his candidate going forward... Uh, to the 2020 election, which is when Johnny Isaacson's seat actually comes up, there is at least the possibility—now, you can't account for renegades— but there is at least the possibility that you lock out— too many challengers wanting to jump in on the Republican side and be a part of that race, leading to what Bluestein's talking about. Yeah,
2: I think part of the reason uh, that we've heard names like Doug Collins, besides the fact that he's a Trump loyalist and has spent a lot of time on television defending the president, but someone who's currently holding a federal office also sets off that set of dominoes that provides a little bit of a pressure valve for the other Republicans looking for ways to, you know, advance their own political career. So someone currently serving Serving in a statewide or a congressional federal office is very attractive because it's not just one, point, one person getting an appointment, but then a, a series of dominoes that might
1: give some other uh, Republicans a chance to advance their careers. Heath, your uh, friend and boss, essentially, Johnny Isaacson, has said uh, when he uh, announced his resignation, he uh, did say that if Governor Kemp asks his opinion, he will be glad to weigh in on who he would like to see in that position or who he thinks would be favorable uh, candidates for that spot. Has Governor Kemp now talked to Johnny and said, I need your help in figuring this out?
4: Well, let me clarify what Johnny said. Johnny said that out of respect for the governor and the difficult decision he's got to make, he's not going to offer his opinion, right? He doesn't, I thought he said he, unless, asked. Uh, unless asked. Unless okay. asked about individuals. But that doesn't mean he would choose an individual over other individuals, right? He is very... Our conversations leading up to the final decision and his conversation, I was in there when he called the governor, uh, has been all about his decision and trying to do what's right by the you know people in the state of Georgia and his health, right? That was the balancing act. And he was very clear that, you know, with the governor, uh, to my knowledge, over the last 24 hours, I don't think Governor Kemp has reached out to him uh, uh, and and had that conversation. But I think it's because Johnny made it pretty clear. He wants to be very respectful. The entire Isaacson team is going to be very respectful of the governor and his team having to make this decision. And, And governors and senators trying to pick their successor hasn't gone well throughout Georgia history, and Johnny recognizes that and thinks it would be inappropriate. So he's not going to go, even if Governor Kemp asked, he's not going to say, I choose this person out of five or six friends or people he thinks are qualified. You Look, know.
0: Well, this decision is so difficult for Governor Kemp, too, because he's replacing somebody with so much experience. But if you think back to six years ago, it was... Senator Perdue now senator Perdue who was running on that political outsider message So does he go that way because it was so successful for senator Perdue?
3: I talked to the governor about this on Monday, so things might have changed since then, but he had not, he said, first, he's, there's no timeline, and I don't expect it to go months, but but I expect, you know, within five or six weeks, that's just me, but he said there's no timeline and that the process really hasn't started up, and I believe that, and it, certainly his aides and the folks in his administration are talking about it, but I don't think they've set up a formal process yet. Last week, they had Dorian, they had the Coast Guard um, disaster over the weekend that, that fortunately ended up rescuing all the survivors um, from that overt- overt- overturned vessel. Um, but he's been sort of consumed with that, and so it's only this week where, where I understand he's he's starting to he, narrow he, up.
1: Yeah, but Cody Hall, of course, his press secretary, mm-hmm. was here yesterday, and I asked Cody... Uh, how many people have called uh, the oh, governor? Sure. Cody said the day after uh, the Johnny announcement, the go- he saw the governor on his cell phone virtually the entire <laughs> day. They're getting inundated with messages, Of sure. course they yeah. are. Um, so, Howard, uh, I've been asking, and yesterday's the closest I got to feeling I understood it better, why you would choose the Purdue race if you're a Democrat rather than the open seat that Johnny Isaacson will uh, surrender. Um, and... And it strikes me that the answer, the best answer I've heard so far, you all sort of indicated here as well, which is if you go for that Isaacson seat, you not only win the special election, have to win it in 2020, you've got to turn around and immediately begin running for the full six-year term starting in 2022. And that strikes me as as good a reason as any to not want to do it. On the other hand, I've said many times on this show, and I think I'm right. Nobody's really contradicted me. You go in that Purdue race, that number, Senate race number one, and Purdue's going to be very tough to beat. And your candidate, <laughs> Teresa Tomlinson, is in that race.
2: Well, my, my candidate, Teresa Tomlinson, kicked this whole race off. So I'll start there. She, <laughs> for the last number of years, has said this was the race she wanted, and and nothing has deterred her from that. Um, and I think there's so many other variables you got to be you know, thoughtful about. I mean, I think you're right that, there are different sets of challenges that are inherent in either race. One, if you are in the Purdue race, you've got a primary. And we've seen uh, in the 2018 election cycle that primaries are going to cut along a number of different lines inside of the Democratic Party. So that I think you've got to think about that. Um, one other thing you guys alluded to, for instance, if you make it first past the post or into a runoff in the Isaacson seat, then you've got the entire world descending upon the state of Georgia for the better part of two months, and you probably don't have to do a whole lot to raise money or to find uh, ways to generate attention, right? You're going to become a national figure just like that overnight, and after doing so, you're going to have no problem seeing national groups coming to your aid based on your policy positions and trying to help you get across the finish line. So I think there's upside and downside to either race. But at the
3: same time, even though you'll get all that attention, you still have to be able to carry the ballot potentially alone. Right. Yep. I mean, it has to be someone. That's the case that, that you know, January
1: 5th, that January 5th,
3: 2021, because, yes, there'll be tons of attention and energy and money. And you're right. You won't have too much problems raising God knows how much money during that <laughs> interim period. But at the same time, you've got to convince voters the week after January 1st to come back out when Maybe their presidential candidate
2: might. Any, not have won. Anybody who wants to be a member of the August body, United States Senate, probably already believes they can do yes. that. What, no matter when the election cycle yeah. is going to be. You out, know, right?
1: Heath, I'm old enough that the race I remember best. Uh, uh, Lori earlier said we know what the record is of Democrats trying to win in uh, runoffs that are jungle runoffs where you've got Republican and Democrat. Um, was uh, Paul Coverdale and White, White Fowler? Fowler. Yeah, that was the year that uh, Bill Clinton won uh, uh, re-election. And uh, Fowler and uh, and Coverdale, no, that was the first, it was 92, Two. 92, 92 was the yeah. first, Clinton had first was elected, and, uh, and Fowler and Coverdale, because there was a third candidate in the race, had a runoff, it didn't come until after the first of the year, mm-hmm. all of the attention of the country was on Georgia, of course, because we were choosing a U.S. senator right after this big Clinton victory. And there was no reason in the world to think that Weich Fowler, the same party as Bill Clinton, who won Georgia that year... W- shouldn't have been elected, and that's not the way that race played out.
4: With, with the Libertarian in the race. And so, look, we haven't even gone to that point where we're talking about the one runoff potentially for the Isaacson seat. But in theory, if a Libertarian well, and an Independent are in the David Perdue seat, <laughs> he, could, he could get 49 points. Oh, he, he could win by two he, or three points, he, and it could even, be two runoffs. Wait a minute, wait a
0: minute. we two. Wait a minute. Wait Wait, wait,
1: wait. Oh, wait. Got, We've got to get a break, but Heath, don't even go there we're going to end up having to do the show seven days a week
4: with the kind of scenarios you're paying. I don't painting. think that's going to happen, by the way. <laughs> I want the Purdue people calling <laughs> me. All right,
1: let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind.
0: You're giving me nightmares. <laughs> the fun drive is right around the corner, but the time to give is now. Your contribution at gpb.org before the drive starts will do twice the good. You'll support the programs you enjoy, and your gift will be part of our challenge fund to inspire others to support GPB during the fund drive. With program costs increasingly on the rise and other sources of funding in question, your support is especially important. Please go to gpb.org now to do your part, and thanks. A Guantanamo whistleblower speaks exclusively to NPR, alleging gross waste of funds at its military court.
1: At least a couple of times a week, there was an instance where someone would tell me some expense we had or some individual we were paying for, and then I would just have to stop in my tracks and say, wait, what? He says he was fired for
0: trying to settle cases. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: Four till seven this afternoon here on GPB. You can also listen online at gpbnews.org. Uh, Lori Geary, we got so much to talk about today. And one of the things that was not on the agenda that I put together, but you mentioned when you walked in the door, is uh, you have an update for us on a story we've been following on this show, as all the local news has about the uh, decision by the Atlanta Public School Board to dismiss Maria uh, Karstarfen. Uh, and you have an update for us on what Car, they, remember, they voted in secret. Uh-huh. To not renew her contract her contract runs till middle of next year June 2020 right, right. but uh, and she, but she's taking action now
0: well she's um retained governor the former governor Roy Barnes now not filing suit as of yet but i I'll bet you Governor Barnes is gonna look into the open meetings act on on some of these um, just to make sure that you know proper protocol was followed because it just seems like you know, nothing was transparent in this. I mean, here is your superintendent of schools who took over at such a trying time when Atlanta Public Schools was on the national map for a cheating scandal. She brings up the test scores. um, She brings up the graduation rates. And yet, um, the board chairman, as of a few months ago, says, you know, she's right on track. She's do, you know, doing the right amount of progress and yet they're not going to extend our contract a few months later. Well, I wanted to get a lot the, of questions. You know, Let me
2: just I want to clarify something you said, Bill, um, to my knowledge, the way I understand it, uh, the Atlanta Board of Education did not vote to not renew our contract. They did not vote in order to extend, uh, which is a little bit different. So when you talk about, you know, going into executive session where these decisions are made, right? Decisions of personnel and real estate and legal are always made for elected bodies in executive session. And I would also just, you know, when I've talked to a number of the members of the board, it's less about a a question of whether or not she's done a great job, because I think no one would argue she hasn't done a great job. I think... The challenge has been just around whether or not there's a consensus on whether or not they want her to continue. And that's why the distinction on not voting to extend her contract is different than actually voting that, not to extend her that's contract. That's also
1: the reason Roy Barnes might be looking at this very carefully. We've heard from any number of members of the board saying... It's not about performance, but they won't tell us what it is about. It strikes me. <laughs> you're and, doing a great and, job. And, you but... know, Heath Garrett, you're a Marietta guy. You don't want to. You don't want to show up in court with Roy Barnes at your side. The other side will start trembling when you do. <laughs> you don't hire Roy Barnes for a simple negotiation of a
3: contract. <laughs> and I was told that, that. And again,
2: I, I just I want to make sure this point is being made. If you work, if you serve at the pleasure of an elected body and you are dismissed for any reason, the decision is made in private to protect you and that board. So the difficulty that the board is in is that they cannot just come out and say, here's how we let you go. Right Now, individual board members, and I've been close to and worked for the last three board chairs, and I've gotten a lot of familiarity about how this, how the sort of chain of command works as it relates to communications, right? The board chair has a responsibility of speaking for the board, but the challenge here, as I understand it, after renewing her contract three times after six years of working together, that they're deciding not to renew, which is different than saying, you're fired. Uh, and the, the fact that the particulars aren't out is really a, f- it's, it's a feature of who she works for, which is an elected board of officials. Okay.
0: But I think an elected board of officials owes it to the people. And to the parents, to the administrators, to explain why they are not extending her contract. And they are actually hiring a public relations firm. I'm not sure if you all have done an open records request on how much that will cost. On how to explain it or how to go forward. And I, I don't understand that. I agree with you. It's, I think it's, it's been bungled
2: in terms very, of the explanation. Very
1: troubling. And if I were a parent with a child in APS, and I imagine there are a lot of people who listen to the show who are in that situation, I know not everybody was happy. Not all parents thought she was doing a great job. But regardless of that, right now, I'd wonder what the heck is happening in the schools
4: that my kids are going to. And you to. talk about the hardest job in politics yeah. mm-hmm. is to be the yeah. superintendent of a major yeah. urban public All school right. system. Uh, Greg Bluestein. what the
1: heck is a rural strike team? <laughs> this is what, Governor Kemp, you <laughs> wrote about this the other day. And, and the background in this, I think I'm right in saying, is that, you know, there's no question that everybody under the Gold Dome, all the elected leaders of this state, have really been concerned about how they can revive the economies of communities across the rural parts of our state. I I mean, I think it's a legitimate uh, desire on their part, but the legislature has really not been able to do as much as they've wanted to. And now the governor steps in and says he's going to take this on with his strike team. Yeah, over the last few
3: years, ambitious efforts to expand broadband and give tax credits and, and other things have stalled in the legislature. They haven't died completely; they'll be back up next year. But they haven't gone as far as as as, as lawmakers, even even the biggest supporters, want them to go. Um, remember, Governor Kemp won election based on tremendous support from rural Georgia. He said he will put rural Georgia at the center of his of his of his political agenda. And so far, though, he has not lived up to the promise to expand broadband Internet throughout rural Georgia. He hasn't lived up to some of those issues that is only his first year, but he hasn't lived up to some of those issues. Um, he said to me in an interview on Monday that it's time to it's time to put your money where your mouth is, essentially, that he's tired of talking about it. He wants to start this rural strike team. Basically, it's a, it's a team pulled from different state agencies, but mostly from the Economic Development Agency that would be charged with identifying potential uh, job sites and and factories and industries that can go into rural Georgia, just with that one focus. Um, He's always said on the campaign trail that 50 jobs in Dodge County is as big as, you know, 500 in DeKalb County. And so he's trying to pull this team together also to give them the expertise to, to do these giant mega sites. There's a handful of mega sites all over, all over the state. There's one in Pooler. There's one in Stanton Springs that just landed a, a giant pharmaceutical company about seven, seven or eight years ago. Um, so th- this team would also be focused on putting together these mega sites.
1: Uh, uh, the, uh, to, to, to give you an example, Lori Geary, I'm not sure if you've uh, been given, gotten this word yet, but... To give you an example of how serious Kemp is, I mean it's a Sisyphean task uh, to try to turn around rural Georgia's economies. But to, one example of how serious this is is as um, state agency heads are submitting their revised budgets, their reduced budgets based on his demand for budget cuts, they've been asked to re- re- give, uh, create new strategic plans which will include what each agency is going to do in terms of its outreach to rural Georgia. He's very serious about this. The bigger question is how do you do it? <laughs> well, I think you also
0: have to look at you know what industries can you draw to these rural areas. I mean, you also have to look at like entertainment industries too. I mean, are we looking at casino options? At, you know, down the line, or I, I know like I just think about like the Great Wolf Lodge in, in Columbus because mm-hmm. Kia's down there too. And even though that's not rural, but you know you got to look at kind of out of the box options that could draw people to certain areas. Um, and of course, healthcare. And you you also have to think politically. This is his base. Uh, I mean, you're talking rural right. Georgia.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Oh, boy. So much to say about this. Um, <laughs> I just think that the difficulty here is, you know, you kind of pull in two directions at one time. There are a number of public policy decisions, especially around rural health care and health care writ large for the state that this administration and previous administrations haven't have kicked the tires on. I guess we'll see what comes out of uh, out of the, the healthcare care um, proposal that camp has already convened the group and they're working on. But, I, you know, I think there are. Some... I don't know if they'd be politically viable, but obviously some options on the table that would address some of the biggest costs, not just of for vitality of, a, of an industry or of an economy, but also how expensive it is to get around or how expensive it is to send kids to college or to have healthcare uh, that'll take care of your family. And I think it's, it's, it's a little difficult to imagine, you know, these out of the box legislative solutions when things that are right in front of our face, like expanding Medicaid just can't be done or won't be done for lack of political will. So I, I I, I, as much as I'd love to see, and I'm a city boy through and through, but as much as I'd love to see Georgia lead the way on investment in rural communities, I don't think that we've shown the political will. And this you know, strike force doesn't sh- strike me as going to be any more successful.
1: So, uh, Heath, uh, just to, to uh, talk about this in pure political terms right now, Laurie makes the point, of course, that this is his base. Um, But it's also he's he's playing with fire to an extent here, because the minute he announces to a Greg Bluestein he's creating this strike force that's going to go out there and turn around. He doesn't say that going to do what it can to improve the economies of rural Georgia. It puts him in a position where when he comes up for reelection, he's got to find some way to deliver on some of it.
4: Well, I do think there's some great opportunities for him, right? And so I, I applaud him for accepting that challenge. He knows full well that if you set the expectation that something's going to happen, that you've got to deliver. There have been some examples of this in Alabama and in Mississippi and other places that look a lot like rural Georgia, right? Where when a governor's actually sincerely put a focus on. Rural counties. If you start with actually the poorest counties and try to you know bring attention to them and organize them in a way, you can have some success uh, like that. So there are some good examples of that. There are some significant challenges in healthcare and in public education. We've seen similar efforts like this in the past, right? Whether it was the rural, uh, it, it, the regional education support agencies, RESA's, which then Governor uh, Purdue tried to create service delivery areas for all of this. I do like the idea of. Trying trying to go where there are opportunities uh, and find it. But you're right, in the raw politics, you have an interesting combination, right, between uh, Speaker Ralston, who's from, you know, rural North Georgia, right, and Brian Kemp, who's covered the whole state. His base is probably actually more in South Georgia Mm -hmm. and in East Georgia Mm -hmm. than it is North Georgia. They have a great opportunity, and for the first time, to really, you know, focus on that, knowing where Governor Kemp's heart is. And so uh, it only takes, his point is, it only takes a few little successes to really help rural counties, you know, make the turnaround and have a little bit of hope left and and, and begin to to organize themselves. Uh, And it does seem, being from some of those counties in southwest Georgia where I grew up, Mm -hmm. you do get the feeling whether it's, you know, that you're so far away from the Metropolitan Population Center of Atlanta, Georgia, that even a a company announcing 10 or 15 new jobs is is a would would start to turn the tide. Greg, who is this strike team?
3: um it's going to be economic development officials from the state economic development Okay
1: I just want to make sure but, I understand
3: But the that. but the in the challenge here is that really significant changes will cost money right I mean expanding broadband rural transit all these things that weren't didn't really get that much traction in the last few years um tax credits for people who move back to rural areas that costs money and, and so far the, the state legislature hasn't been able to figure out a way to either raise fees or raise taxes or cut other spending in order to do this and that's what it's going to boil down to well, me,
2: and just to jump in for a second here yeah. i think one of the things that's easily misunderstood about these multi-million dollar billion dollar incentives or these billion dollar initiatives most of sta- most of state government spending is already locked in 92 yeah. 93% we're talking about 7 or 8% of discretionary funding that a governor and the legislature, from year to year, can decide to to well, move in one yeah. direction or another. I mean, so I go
1: back to project. I go back to Corridor Z, for goodness sake. This was a, the roadway that, see, nobody at this I table, Keith know, no, know Garrett,
4: know Garrett
1: knows it. It was an attempt to take to build a road, to pave your way out of economic problems by creating a corridor that went east to west, I can't remember what communities. Columbus it, to Albany yeah. to Tifton, all the way yeah, over the, to St. And Simon's. it was a hugely controversial project at the time because right. it, it, it cost the state a fortune And it didn't do much of anything, Heath Garrett. Well,
4: we would argue, uh, right, that it did. It stopped some of the bleeding, right? You're stopping the negative uh, things. You did create four-lane opportunities. Look, I think there are a couple of macro trends that have been against rural America, and Georgia is just a part of that over the last 30 years, which is this mass migration to urban centers. There's one macro trend, right, that Donald Trump doesn't get a lot of credit for, but one thing that is going to happen is we relocate supply chains away from China, is you're going to see more onshoring. There's a unique opportunity over the next three to four years for the rural south, and including Georgia, to see some of that supply chain come back. Not all of it. You're not going to get back thousands of jobs, but you're going to get back some assemblage in these manufacturing supply chains, or you're going to keep stuff here and expand in Georgia. If, if Kemp can double down on that, there are a couple of micro trends he could take right. advantage of. I,
1: I got to get you another break. Uh, the one... Piece of good news we give to farmers, uh, Greg, is that uh, the three billion dollars in emergency relief money that Washington has been saying will eventually get out, uh, and Georgia is going to get a big chunk of it is finally being released. Farmers in in Georgia who were hurt by Michael uh, are finally going to get an opportunity to apply for money
3: and it couldn't have come and he's, i mean exactly. it's been it's been almost a year now since well, Hurricane michael we, we, hit that area thank
1: goodness for all of you down there who are listening who are going through problems to this day because of michael let's get our final break this show out of the rain way and come back on political rewind I am David Moses, Director of Public Relations and Communications for the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa. What makes the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa so spectacular? As soon as you walk out from any one of our hotel rooms, you are feet away from the Atlantic Ocean and the pristine natural environs that Hilton Head Island offers. We underwrite with Georgia Public Broadcasting because we believe in the high quality programming it delivers.
0: To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship
3: at gpb.org.
0: On the next Fresh Air, when you recycle plastics and paper, are you unknowingly contaminating the recycling by including things you shouldn't? Where does your recycling really end up now that China is no longer accepting it? And what about e-waste, your computers and devices? We'll talk with Kate O'Neill, author of Waste.
1: Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB Radio and streaming on your smart speaker, the GPB apps, and at gpbnews.org. Glad to have you all back for uh, Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, Howard Franklin, uh, Heath Garrett, and Lori Geary are uh, in the studio today. Our temporary studio still. <laughs> We're getting close. We think next month we'll move into our new facilities. And I'm getting when you used to see this. it on Facebook Live, it's really something. Lori Geary, uh, you uh, made a little piece of the news the other day when it was announced that Governor Kemp is going to revitalize a committee that Governor uh, Deal had initially begun, and essentially it's uh, to go out there and make sure that every person who lives in this state is counted in the 2020 census, and you're handling, the, you and Theron Johnson are mm-hmm. handling the communications effort on this, right?
0: Right. So it's the governor's complete count committee, and it's a bipartisan committee. And when the governor's office called and I looked at the list, I was like, wow, there's a lot of distinguished folks on it. And it's, it's everyone from Stacey Abrams' sister to uh, the head of the Republican Party, and then it's political... Other political, I'm sorry, I can't speak. By Other partisan. political leaders, and then um, just like head agencies, state agencies. So it was a really great list. And so Theron and I agreed to do this, um, but we're just going to be out there making sure that everyone fills out the form. I mean, it's a big political year, so imagine having to advertise to fill out your census form. Uh,
1: yeah, I asked Cody Hall on the show yesterday whether the governor was committed to making sure that everyone, regardless of legal status, in the state was going to be counted. And Cody said, and I virtually quote him, we're going to follow the letter of the law.
0: <laughs> well, the marketing committee,
1: <laughs> Yes. Um,
0: our slogan is everyone counts, yes. uh, no matter what. So everyone counts. And there's going to be a launch, I think it's on March 25th, is the rollout of the, the PSAs and the big marketing campaign. So i know
1: I have to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I have to say, Greg, after all of the controversy that is trailed after Wilbur Ross and his citizenship <clears throat> question, uh, and given that we're living in a state with a governor who's very close to President Trump, I was sort of heartening to hear that he, is, uh, he recognizes that making sure every single person is counted has great economic and political benefits for the state. I mean, you think
3: about 900 billion dollars if I'm if I'm remember correctly so as head of the marketing committee mm-hmm. let me just give you some facts <laughs> yeah, bring it on.
0: so for everybody 10 years ago who filled out your uh, census form that was $2,300 per, per year that we got back in value um, as citizens, that's $23,000. And you're talking about transportation, most of it, though, in health care. So 51% of the dollars came back in health care from the federal government. But the, our biggest challenge, if the millennials are listening, please fill out the form because that's our biggest is challenge. Is that the
1: biggest challenge? Okay. How big, though, is a challenge, Heath, for immigrants, legal or otherwise, who are afraid to answer
4: the census? I think they're actually, and this is. Counterintuitive because we spend a lot of time on this show talking about voter suppression and some other false narratives that I think are out there. I do think you're right. Immigrants. Dave, you are, call I, false. I, I call, Let's be clear. I call, I call false. <laughs> we have Democrats of, on the show who <laughs> don't agree with that. But well, go ahead. Of course not. The, 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 the you know what gets left out of this is there's no question right that that. Uh, Folks uh, in minority populations, uh, you know, near-term immigrants, whether they're legal or not, uh, are, are a challenge. But actually, if you look at the raw numbers, the largest group of folks most likely not to fill out their census or not to fill it out fully are rural, white. Really? Uh, citizens and voters. And so it's the largest population. There's this whole movement within the uh, kind of the right side of politics for privacy purposes. They don't want to give their information to the federal government. Right. And there's with all the hype now about privacy with Google and Facebook and, and NSA and all these other things, that population is actually growing rapidly. So in raw numbers. There's an incentive for everybody to have everybody counted here because Republicans are going to benefit just as much as Democrats politically if if we try to get everybody counted and fill it out fully.
0: There is a mistrust of government. That's another issue. And this is the first time you'll, you'll be able to fill it out online. But right. you can do it by phone. You can do it by the snail mail as well.
1: Howard, it's... um. It's heartening that we're going to try to count everybody, but you know there are going to be communities out there where people are are scared to death about answering. That's exactly right.
2: And, And we shouldn't forget that from this White House on down... You know uh, this 2018 governor's race and plenty of the rhetoric that'll continue through the 2020 legislative session. Just in any given news cycle, there are plenty of reasons for people to be afraid or to be distrustful of their government. I think you can't have one uh, without the other. You yeah. got to acknowledge the other if you're going to have the one.
3: And it's not just fear and mistrust. I mean, uh, think about the hard to count populations like renters, yeah, who who move yeah. around a lot, and it'll be hard for the census to track them down or or, or to send uh, to a correct address. I mean, there's there's a lot of challenges that lori has got ahead of but her. it's where you live on
0: april 1st 2020 and we are bipartisan
1: okay yeah <laughs> um you know <clears throat> excuse oh i'm so sorry heath garrett um we've only got a few minutes left and now i can't talk I'm <laughs> getting all choked up I want to drop—we were going to talk about North Carolina. The 9th District did go to the Republican, but by such a narrow margin that it does, Greg, pose problems for Trump in in terms of whether he can win. He won that state by 11, 12 points, uh, and now the Republican only wins by a a A narrow margin, a point or two. Uh, So North Carolina is not safe territory for the Republicans. Fair enough?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to read too much into that that vote, but— but it was looking like it was going to go Republican. Yeah. It went Republican, but it, it was a thinner margin. It was kind of like the 17 vote here in, with in Tom Price's yeah. district in the 6th.
1: All right. I, I wanted to just run through that because, Heath, as I said at the very top of the show, we, we haven't had a chance to talk to you since Johnny made this kind of startling announcement that caught us all off guard. You were closer to him than anybody. You told me uh, after the announcement was made it had been an incredibly difficult week or so for you and two. Would you just take a... Tell us a little bit about what that process was like,
4: Well, obviously very personal. I mean, Johnny is like another uh, Father uh, to me. I worked with him uh, really he reminded me I started working with him in the fall of 1989 when I was president of the student body at the University of Georgia and we formed students for Isaacson so it's been a long In great relationship. He's been a mentor. He's been a boss. He's been a partner. We've done all kinds of interesting policy things together. Um, And if you'd, you know, in May, uh, if you'd have talked to his neurologist, to Johnny Isaacson or to any of us, we would have, you know, bet a million dollars. There's no chance he ain't making it to 2022. But Parkinson's is a cruel disease. It doesn't kind of happened gradually. There are plateaus and then drops in the way that it happened. Clearly, uh, his disease progressed a, a fair amount between May and July when he fell and fractured his ribs. The blessing in that is is that the fractured ribs led to the body scan that found the kidney cancer, right? Mm-hmm. But when you can... Compound the f- fracture, of the Parkinson's, and then kidney cancer, which there's a generally optimistic prognosis on the kidney cancer, which is good news. Uh, Johnny Isaacson could not fathom not serving at 100% seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I know people don't view senators or congressmen and women as working that hard. We all know that Johnny Isaacson did. He was a realtor, they worked seven days a week selling real estate. He, he took that to the U.S. House and to the U.S. Senate. And the idea of him having to make accommodations, he felt like he would be shortchanging the people. And it was going to impinge upon the recuperation and the dealing with the physical therapy that goes with Parkinson's. And so he's going to be around, uh, as he likes to say, it's not his obituary, but it is his retirement. And made diff- more difficult by the fact that he did not want to leave now. He didn't want to leave the governor with this tough decision, but there was just no way physically uh, for him to continue. And so uh, once he got done with the kidney surgery, he knew it was time to make the announcement and do what he felt like it was right. He's been in, he has
1: served in elective office since 1980. Seventy six, uh, so nineteen seventy six, and now makes this decision. How agonizing was that?
4: Uh, to watch him go through it, and to have the two or three of us who you know were in the room trying to help him think through what his options were, given that, and and for his family, right, who you can understand want to, you know, have him back home and be able to spend the quality time. It was absolutely agonizing. It was almost like a Shakespearean tragedy, that this individual who had been the CEO of a major real estate company, the only person in Georgia history to serve in the State House, the State Senate, the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate you add up that 40 years you know you're starting to you know be compared to the Sam Nuns and the Richard B Russells of the Georgia political history uh, t- to have it happen so suddenly. Right. It, you would we were thinking and he was hoping that it was going to be 2022 and there would be this gradual retirement towards the next election. And to have you know a cruel disease do this to you so quickly was uh, was agonizing to watch it happen. And there was no right answer for him. Right. Does he yeah. try to do what other senators have done, which is hold on and not show up to vote? And. And do things like that. He didn't feel like that was the best way to serve the people of the state of Georgia, um, particularly given all the challenges that we have at the national level and at the international level, and, and here in Georgia. And so, I think Johnny Isaacson made a noble and statesmanlike decision, and deciding to do it the way that he did, given the governor and the state time to figure it out till December thirty first, and he will continue to serve and be there for. Democrats and Republicans and of course the outpouring of support from his Democratic friends from his Republican friends and from people that weren't even his friends has been overwhelming for him and a great tribute.
1: You know one thing that uh, Heath didn't mention he always has been gotten a lot of bipartisan support obviously. Uh, This is a guy who along with Paul Coverdale. served in uh, the legislature as lonely Republicans and over a period of time, Johnny particularly, helped transform the state legislature to where, where it is now, a majority Republican body. When
3: you talk about cornerstone of today's modern Republican Party in Georgia, you said you were in the room with, with the <laughs> senator when he called Governor Kemp and to give him the news. What was that like?
4: Well, it was surreal. It was very sobering, you know, to, to make that call um, after he'd come out of surgery on Monday and had the, you know, the prognosis that things were okay. It's never great to have kidney cancer of any kind. It kind of allowed him to set his time frame on how long he thought he could continue to serve and uh, make that call. But he was very respectful. He and Brian have been good friends for a long time. And Marty's father and Johnny Isaacson had served. Marty being the governor's wife. Marty Kemp, uh, his father, was a Democratic state legislator from Athens. Bob Argo had served together, so there's a tight personal relationship there. And so, look, there were tears and, you know, it was emotional and... Brian and
1: was complete, I'm sorry, the governor was completely caught off guard.
4: It seemed to be, you know, I mean obviously every time something happens, Johnny Isaacson folks start to get concerned, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the rib rehab had been going well, what I don't think anybody had known, and we didn't weren't, we've always been transparent with all of his health, but we needed to have the surgeon go in and figure out what it, what it was. They weren't sure they couldn't, they couldn't call it a carcinogen or, or not a carcinogen, but cancer until mm-hmm. they'd done the surgery, I think that was what uh, was the kind of the final straw in the decision-making process, and probably caught the governor, and the timing obviously wasn't uh-huh. expected. Johnny Isaacson,
1: we've talked about him a lot since uh, that announcement. We talked a lot about him before he made that announcement, but thank you for sharing a few insights uh, with us about And he does look forward to coming decision. on the
4: show sometime soon, Bill. <laughs> Yeah,
1: we're looking forward to having him here. Um, <laughs> That's it. We're out of time for uh, today. Lori Geary, thank you for being here. We look forward to watching you at 8.30 on Sunday morning on Fox 5 WAGA. And then people, you got to turn over to GPB-TV and watch Political Rewind as well. Heath Garrett, Howard Franklin, Greg Bluestein. thank you for a really terrific conversation today. We're off tomorrow, but we're back Friday at 2. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care.